0: Hi, this is Paul, and you're listening to Archonnex Sessions, episode 120. This week, Ken, Donna, and I will be talking about some of the stories in the news, and we'll also be discussing criticism, specifically how it relates to online anonymous feedback and professional criticism in the workplace. Hey, guys, how are you doing? Hey.
1: Hey, doing good.
0: I have to say happy birthday to Donna Sink, who... Thank you. Donna, you just let Ken and I know before getting on the on the show. I had no idea. You, you tend to be quite humble about it. You're not one of those people that that uh, announces it on Facebook.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, birthdays can be a big deal or not, but it, it doesn't change the world if they are or aren't. I mean, it you know, sometimes I do a big celebration and sometimes I don't. This year, nothing much is going on because other things are happening. But yes, I'm 51 years old today, which is appropriate given our first news item my age that's
0: my right man. so you were <laughs> what? so you were born you were born exactly one year before the fair housing act
1: one year to the day before the fair housing act was signed yes
0: wow so i guess we're just jumping right into the news then so today the day that we're recording this which is wednesday most people will be listening to this on thursday which is uh tomorrow and so yesterday we published a, uh, a piece on <laughs> the fair housing act And we rounded up some pieces that we published in the past on social housing projects. And I mean, um, you guys have any uh, thoughts on the Fair Housing Act and historically and where we're at now?
1: Oh, God, so many. (laughs) So many, so many thoughts, of course. Um, I mean, I think there's so many ways we could we could talk about this. It's very disappointing, obviously, that the Obama era rule to affirmatively further fair housing, which was a rule that actually said cities can't just say or government entities can't just say we're providing for fair housing. They have to actually do it. That was a signature piece of legislation from Obama's administration and Department of Housing and Urban Development under Ben Carson just suspended it. They just decided, yeah, we're not going to force anyone that has any problem with fair housing. We're not going to make them have to follow these rules. So that basically means what they're saying is we don't care if it's fair or not. We're not going to bother supporting this rule. it's, It's appalling. Yeah, we're in a bad situation in terms of housing.
2: Yeah. It's even worse than that. There was a study just came out recently about where the there's a lot of housing that's being multifamily or not multi yeah, multifamily housing that's being built right now, but it seems to be hitting the higher income levels and it's not hitting where it's necessarily needed. So we're still not, you know, we're building density, but we're not building density for the right people. So we're not solving the problem. <laughs> There's still a housing boom happening right now. It's still, but it's it's situated, especially in Minneapolis, and and the firm I work with, we're doing a lot of you know these um, mixed use developments and and such that that are really like kind of catering towards fifteen hundred and up dollar rents, or so it's it's still not hitting the right people.
1: Right, there was an article. I know Arkanet covered it maybe a year or so ago. That um, in there were only like three cities in the United States where you could afford a two-bedroom apartment on a single full-time job wage. Like that's just there's not there's not sufficient housing that's affordable out there. And the the thing that I'm going to put on my skeptic's hat here, it kind of makes me crazy that. Every time you bring up an idea of fair housing, you get all these naysayers that are like, oh, it's just welfare and, oh, projects always breed more crime. And these people are just living on the Reagan. And I say this as someone who's now 51. So I was very cognizant. I was in my 20s when Ronald Reagan was president. And Ronald Reagan brought up this term of the welfare queen, you know, someone who just lives off the welfare and is is living high on life on welfare. And that demonized an entire huge portion of our society who are people who basically just need a little help getting on their feet. So now you say the word social housing and everyone immediately thinks of Ronald Reagan's welfare queen example. They don't think of things like a family that has medical problems and just can't afford full rent at this point, or a single mother who's trying to get a college education. And so while she's in college, she wants to live in subsidized housing. Like people aren't willing to look at the nuances of any of the argument. And all they see are these these really easy catchphrases and the buzzwords of, Oh, they're welfare queens or oh, they're just a bunch of criminals that live in criminal high rises. Like, oh, it's sorry. Yeah, I'm ranting. <laughs> <laughs> As a 51-year-old woman, I'm ranting about what I've experienced in my last 50 years of the Fair Housing Act trying to be implemented, but having to go up against enormous odds. And, you know, why would anyone in this country have a problem with everyone having somewhere to live? Why is that something you would fight against? Right? I don't understand it.
2: Even progressives have a problem with it. A lot of them do. As soon as it hits their backyard, they're like, uh, and I've experienced it in my own community. My own community is a bunch of hippies aging hippies and um soon as we started looking at what's what and and you can change the terminology there's very savvy we tried calling it and it's not we um the state calls it workforce housing and workforce right. housing is you know like if you're graduating college and you're a teacher or you're someone who's at the low end of a professional income because you're starting out early in your career you want a place to live and you want to live in a nice community so we try to take over this one school that had lost so much enrollment that they were the school, the building wasn't occupied anymore so we were trying to turn it into workforce housing the minute we did that we went had to go back to the community as a community organization neighborhood organization we had to go back to the community and present the plan and we were there and I couldn't believe the people that came out and the absolute racism that was inherent in their language and it's so it's so coded they would tell you to your to your face that they're not racist, but they're so savvy now. (laughs) They talk about numbers in the family. They talk about, you know, they talk about, and it's really, when you start talking about numbers in the family, you know where they're angling. You know where they're angling, because we know that, we know statistically, we have census data, white people aren't having kids in certain numbers so we know who they're talking about we know because they know
1: yeah one of the most striking things that i remember learning this is when i lived in philadelphia when i first moved to philadelphia so 25 years ago and uh they were taking down some sort of typical 70s high-rise project housing to build instead row house style subsidized housing and at one of the meetings about it, I learned from someone who was working on the project that people who go into subsidized housing, and especially back in this time in the late nineties, they frequently didn't have housekeeping skills. Like they didn't, they, they were people who had lived in apartments their whole life. They didn't understand if you put someone in a row house that they had to, they were in control of their own thermostat you know, there wasn't a radiator that the super turned on to make the heat come on, that they had their own thermostat. And I've collected more and more stories like this over time that when you drop someone in a house, that doesn't solve the problems that lead to things like homelessness or, you know, uh, economic issues of not being able to afford and maintain a house, that there needs to be a larger social program that teaches people and shows people how to live in a community. And in this way, when I keep going back to this, our last podcast with Mike Eliason about social housing in Austria and in European countries, that people there move into social housing and they're not kicked out when they start achieving a certain income level, they can stay there. And that to me means that's how you build a community of people who start to, you know, look after each other and know each other. And they're all committed to the place being a good community of people together. So we can argue all day about how many houses we're building, which right now in this country, we're not building any social housing at all. But if you don't also give people the kind of social construct that allows them to live in a community together, it's not going to be supportive. It's not going to be a supportive environment. And then the other thing I read, I'll just mention this, that I just read recently, was this comment that right now it sounds like it's a really great thing to give neighborhoods a certain amount of control over how their neighborhoods develop. And in a a way, this is going to go exactly against what I just said about the importance of building a community of people who all live together and share sort of similar beliefs about how that community should be. If you let neighborhood A... Decide that they don't want to densify their neighborhood or build more housing in their neighborhood. They're basically voting in for themselves an enormous property value raise. They're saying we're going to maintain our property values at the expense of everyone else who has to find somewhere to live. And we don't really care. And so there's this whole notion of neighborhood control being a really good thing, but it's also a really insidious thing.
2: And that, you know, it's interesting. I, I listened to the, I don't know, we're going to talk a little bit about this, but I listened to the Christopher Hawthorne with Francis Anderton podcast today. And he said something which is very interesting. And it's, it's a problem that we have here in the Twin Cities is that LA has a very weak mayor and a very strong city council. And the reason why they have a very strong, and what's, what's problematic about that is the same problem that we have here in the Twin Cities. We have that that problem. I mean, and so that each city council member represents a, a particular community or na- a set of neighborhoods. So if, if they apply their pressure well enough, they can get, you know, you could see where how we don't, we can, you can really control where the development happens and what kind of development happens in your community. So those communities that don't have as much power because you can like say North Minneapolis doesn't have the kind of power that they that um, let's say some part of Western uh, Western Minneapolis has because you can build up a coalition with a few number few of adjacent adjacent council members. You can really shut down what happens in another community. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> just, so there is never, you know, I, I constantly ask myself, what is my council member doing to help benefit? And I, I'm like, I'm a citizen of Minneapolis. I may live in this particular community. I have a great city councilman. But what is my city councilman actually doing to help better North Minneapolis it, how is he building that coalition? And I hope he is. And he seems he's a Green Party guy. So I kind of sense that he does do that pretty well. But I, those are the questions I'm asking myself. Am I doing enough to make sure that communities of color that aren't represented in my community are getting access to the kinds of capital and the kinds of resources that my community gets because we're filled with a bunch of white people who have a, a certain amount of power? Not a certain amount, a hell of a lot of power and a lot of money.
1: <laughs> I have to say, Paul, I really appreciate how Archonnect celebrated this anniversary today with this um, article that that links to all of these previous stories about housing issues. I mean, I feel like it makes it a really easy sort of source of research for people. But it is amazing to me that From what I am seeing, this is a huge topic that we're finally getting around to really discussing in the architecture world. Because when I was in architecture school, we would talk about public housing only as a building, not as a built example of political and social powers and influences. We would only discuss it as look at how cool this, you know, Habitat 67 by Moshe Safdie, which my boss just went and saw last weekend and said is really pretty amazing. We would talk about it as a piece of architecture only, not about all of the sort of political will behind getting it built. And I love that you collected all these pieces in one place where people can sort of start to make those connections between zoning codes and how does that affect housing and not just talk about it as buildings.
0: I'm glad to hear that you uh, that you like that. I, I hope other people will as well and get a chance to look at some of those uh, previous articles. And and also, I mean, the our last Podcast uh, episode, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. with uh, Michael Eisen yeah. talking about uh, social housing projects in in Europe and and what a you know what a great example those are. So anybody interested in the subject should go back and listen to episode one nineteen with uh, with Michael Eisen. is really really great conversation. So shall we move on? Yeah, we just reported earlier today as we received the news from the AIA that Robert Ivy is to receive the Lifetime Achievement Award. I've heard people. Perhaps people on this show right now indicate that perhaps this is a
2: indication of a possible uh, upcoming retirement. You know, you don't get lifetime achievement awards when you're 25. You get them kind of at the end of your end of your career cycle. So I think this is probably a pretty good. And he's the first one. He's the first architect to get this particular award from this organization. From what I from what I read, he's the first architect to receive that. So I mean, he's a first. And wow, what, what better way than to go out on top? Here's to you, Bob. Yeah. I'm going to drink a beer for you.
1: <laughs> drink a beer, Ken. <laughs> what piqued my interest in the article about this was, uh, and congratulations, Bob Ivy, was that it says that his previous accolades includes the designation of Master Architect from the National Architecture Fraternity Alpha Rho Chi. And I've got to tell you, I have never heard of Alpha Rho Chi before. And I'm a 51 year old architect, so I went looking to see what Alpha Rho Chi is because my first thought was, oh, it's a national architecture fraternity. It's probably all men, but it's not. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a fraternity that various colleges have chapters of on their campuses. And but now I'm just starting to think, you know, maybe I kind of feel like maybe I want to be a master architect. Why not designated by Alpha Rho Chi?
2: You're not getting effed. <laughs> you curse too much I'm you're not like gonna sailor get you're, you're not getting you're not getting it i'm sorry i think
0: donna will get effed but um how does one become a master architect
1: i'll have to find that out i guess okay. mm. i just did a very cursory glance of it today but basically in the article on architect it says that alpha Chi members include Mies van der Rohe, bucky fuller and i M. Pei. so that's a fraternity i'd like to be part of i think sounds like a fraternity um, <laughs> that, that
0: needs a woman a strong woman
1: yeah, definitely. But there are there are women that are Alpha Rokai members, so I'm gonna I'll have to look into that. I just may want to see if I can sort of force my way into that uh, that fraternity. I'm gonna. Nominate, I bet they have great hazing. I'm rituals. gonna nominate you. I'm gonna nominate
2: you. I'm gonna go
0: drink a few more drinks, and then I'm gonna nominate everybody you. out there listening. Nominate Donna.
1: Congratulations to Bob Ivy for getting this Lifetime Achievement Award, and he does have a great <laughs> accent. It's from the Mississippi Institute of Arts and Letters. He's clearly from there, I mm-hmm. guess, and yeah, he's got a nice accent. So congratulations.
0: Well, okay. Moving on. Um, we had our little <laughs> gossip moment on, on our connect this week that, uh, got <laughs> the, uh, architecture community, especially Donna, <laughs> a flutter. I think, uh, Many, many jealous people out there in the industry, uh, both men and women to the news that Brad Pitt is, is, uh, becoming closer with Neri Oxman from MIT. That doesn't indicate there's no signs that there's any kind of romantic involvement, but they're hanging out and I guess sharing <laughs> their love for architecture together. Kind of exciting. No,
2: I love both of them. So, so I, I, love I mean, both of them. I've, I've loved Brad Pitt ever since true romance. So, I mean, I, yeah. you know i brad and i go way back yeah
0: yep that's a deep and abiding love ken and,
2: <laughs> and he and he really is a true lover of
0: architecture you know as much as he people is. love to make fun of him you know interning with gary and hanging out with whoever rem maybe i don't know but he he does really appreciate good architecture he has um has shown that in a variety of ways yeah and and nary oxman is is incredibly smart
1: a genius She's a genius. And yeah, I mean, Brad has been one of the biggest boosters that architecture could ever want. And I really it really sort of frustrates me that so many in our field just laugh and make fun of his affection for architecture because we should be embracing it. Um, I mean, not to be a totally, you know, like some kind of marketing person about this, but we should we should bank on the fact that, oh, this guy who's super popular and super powerful in Hollywood likes architecture. How can we use that to our own benefit as a profession. I mean,
2: <laughs> the question I I've always asked about have about this kind of thing is that you just think about it. I mean, anytime anyone sends or give, provides any glimmer, you know, a glimmer of love of our profession, we're, we're quick to, if they're not oh, part of the profession, we're quick to kick them to the curb. And I'm like, what are we looking for? What kind of, I mean, yeah. what what kind of self, I mean, I'm a self-loathing individual. <laughs> I mean, I get that. I get, but even- And we're I mean, going
1: to talk about that in our next podcast. <laughs> yeah. I mean,
2: I totally, I totally get that, but I'm like, you know, there's something I, I appreciate about, you know, someone in, I remember this and when I was in college, I had heard he bought the rights to Fountainhead, that he was going to remake yeah. the Fountainhead. So I thought, you know, it could be interesting, but I mean, If someone takes a really, you know, someone outside the profession takes a really passionate interest in in our profession, I'm all for it. I mean, I am completely fascinated with Neri Oxman and I'm completely fascinated with other people outside of this profession. I mean, are they going to like, no one's going to applaud me for that. But I mean, you know, what are we looking for? What what kind of recognition is going to satisfy the people on the website that's going to make it? Oh, wow. Wow. That's that's a really good thing. I totally agree. I, yeah, completely agree. And what I,
0: what I love about the fact that it's Neri Oxman that he is getting all this tabloid attention from is that she's not the stereotypical architect. She really, her work really exists on the fringe of architecture, but it's completely contained within the world of architecture. And that might help make some people that are following this widen their, their definition of what being an architect or working in architecture means which is
1: only good for the profession right now because we are so pigeonholed into just being building designers and as the worlds of design become so much more diffuse and and blurry and merged we need to be on the forefront of pushing our very all-encompassing knowledge of how people exist in the built world that, that you know and Neri is doing this amazing work with how we build buildings that yeah what is there to not like about the idea of her using her genius And Brad using his connections and fame to bring more attention to what amazing, cool things architects can do besides just, you know, design a damn kitchen.
2: When she gave her talk in Philadelphia, her keynote address at the uh, at our conference, I honestly thought that you and I were going to be the only one giving her standing ovation. But when the entire room. Yeah. Um, Jaded. Yep. You know, very technical professionals who are really interested in making money, got up on their feet and gave this woman a standing ovation. I was I was floored. I mean, she was talking about things that were so outside of the profession right now. And when I hear, well, this is this is not doable. Well, you know what? Putting a man on the moon in 1940 was actually not doable. You know, doing the things that we're doing today was, you know, a long time ago wasn't doable. And I don't mind, you know, if there's a couple of people tilting at the windmill trying to push a profession in a way that's not doable because, you know, there's something there's something that comes out of the grinding away at a problem that even if it doesn't result in a in the solution, the solution isn't isn't the resultant. it's there's some other things that bridge off of that. I'm fine with that, too.
1: Yeah. As you said, Paul, it's a lot of tabloid stuff. You know, the tabloids are all gushing and breathless about how they're spending lots of time together. I, I can totally see this being just, they are collaborating on really cool ideas and, um, I think that would be wonderful. I can see them becoming, you know, getting married and that would be equally wonderful. I, I'm happy with all, I'm happy with it no matter what happens.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think we're, we're all, uh, we all support this relationship and, uh, (laughs) I think we can take I'm an official stance on that. Um, yeah, it's exciting. Moving on, let's talk about a quick news post that we made the other day that we will actually be exploring in more detail tomorrow, which is the day that this podcast is released. The artist Eduardo Trasoldi, he is a wire mesh artist that does really amazing large-scale installations of buildings that give them kind of a ghost-like appearance. He was commissioned to do a large-scale installation for Coachella, which is starting this weekend. I know that, Donna, you were one of the first ones to comment on this, referencing the work of uh, Doho Soo, I assume a Korean artist, that, that does similar work to Eduardo's, but in in latex, uh, and you shared an image of that. In
1: fabric, in fabric, yeah, in nylon.
0: Oh, Okay. I'm really excited about this, and now I'm I'm really regretting not going to Coachella this year, just specifically to see that that installation. Because if it's anything like the images that we've seen of his previous work, it's going to be pretty stunning.
2: It's it's sublime. I love the kind of the the kinds of ephemeral qualities this has, and to be again to present it in an, in a, in an environment where you don't expect, and having letting people have access to it who normally aren't confronted with this kinds of work. I think it's only. It's only going to be that much, you know, again, I think we're starting to finally hit our stride in making connections to people that don't normally see architecture in in different ways and i think this is a good thing
0: well his work is a very clear architectural type of of uh installation work that he does the previous architects that have done work at uh, music festivals specifically coachella that we've covered a lot on on archonnect in the past they're architects but they're not doing necessarily the work that the public may perceive as architecture but this work Mm This work is really extremely architectural and presented in a way that I'm sure is going to be completely new to most of the people experiencing this. And I can't imagine a better context than Coachella to unveil this type of work.
1: I just love that it completely changes the materiality of what he's studying. So he's looking at something like a Corinthian column or a Roman, you know, basilica or a, a something that is a masonry, a solid heavy masonry structure and then replicating just that outer surface of it with wire. So you sense the mass and weight, but you actually see that the mass and weight doesn't exist. I love how it inverts your your way of um of perceiving the world. It's just it's just gorgeous so beautiful
0: so come check out the uh the new images that are being published today the day of the release of this podcast on archonnect there's going to be images of of the installation on site in coachella so
2: stay tuned for that and the butchers are there
0: <laughs> the, butchers, or the, butchers the butchers are the herbivorous butchers Coachella?
2: yeah oh they just shipped out like a couple of tons of stuff for the two weekends they're gonna be both weekends very cool.
0: Wow.
2: Fantastic. Are, are the uh, the
0: brother and sister owners are they gonna be working the the stall or Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh cool.
2: <laughs> so you can get your fried chicken madness. Oh I, I dream about that all the time.
1: Fried chicken. It's not really chicken, it's right?
0: Chicken. <laughs> <laughs> here's an interesting story that i can share on the podcast when i when i went out to minneapolis to uh to do our interview with ken at a snow i stocked up on the uh herbivorous butcher meat meatless meat and ended up having a little incident at the airport where i i, I went to the bathroom at the airport left the bag of meat <laughs> on the counter because there was nowhere else to leave it and the bomb squad ended up coming in and ripping <laughs> it apart because they it was a suspicious package <laughs> that's that's my meatless meat story but managed to save it. They didn't, once they realized it was food and it wasn't a bomb, then they didn't uh, pursue. So they ended up giving me a nice Minneapolis airport tote bag to to take it back home in, so... Those Midwesterners
2: are so friendly. Those thrilling. people
1: in Minneapolis are so
2: yeah. nice. <laughs> Many people still consider it a suspicious package, but just <laughs> as a side note,
1: <laughs> what it's meat, but it's what? not my, meat. My kids, what the hell my are you kids, definitely about?
0: thought it was a little suspicious until they tried it and they loved Did they? it. Oh, that's great. I love the sausages actually. The sausages were, I think were my favorite.
2: Yeah, it, it usually winds up being everybody's favorite. I think it's it's the easiest thing because it's. Just, when you eat your own, when you eat regular meat sausages, what the fuck is in that shit? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> yeah. All right, moving on. So, are you guys familiar with uh, Harvard
0: GSD's Wheelwright Prize? A little bit. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a substantial award, if I remember. It's one hundred thousand, which which does make it quite substantial, relatively, you know, in the architecture world. Um, it is uh, sponsored by Harvard GSD and. They just announced the winner the other day for the Wheelwright Prize, and that was awarded to a Belgian architect, Aureline Dullier, which I, I'm sure I'm massacring her, uh, her name, but uh, the pronunciation of her name. But she won it. Her proposal was called Crafted Images, Material Flows, Techniques, and Its Uses in Set Design Construction. So there's more news about that on online. So
1: can I take the like, really, this is like your dumb uncle's take on this, this, her proposal, which sounds amazing. She's talking about the movie industry streamlining its material use. And, and my first thought was when I went to architecture school at the University of Arizona in Tucson and outside of Tucson, there's a little place that I can't remember the name of it now, but basically it was a Western movie set, right? So it was a built in the desert and it was a. Set of an old western town, and they would film fifty movies a year there. You know, like they would just use the same set over and over again to film this western and that western and that western. And so, I, you know, congratulations to Audeline, and I love Belgium. Congratulations to her for winning this. It's a great prize and it's a very well respected prize. But my first thought was just like, well, yeah, let's just build a set and just use it over and over again, and that'll that'll take care of the material waste problem in the film industry, right? Yeah, but again, this is like your uncle that says, "Well, a two-year-old could paint that when they look at a Jackson Pollock." So, yeah, that's my take on it.
0: Well, it'll be interesting to see what she, uh, how how her her work unfolds. Maybe we should try to get her on the podcast to talk to us more about this because we should, we absolutely
2: should. Yeah. What's notable is that for her project, she'll be going to a number of different countries. Not included in that is where all these other countries got their work from, which is Hollywood. So.
1: It's oh yeah, you're right. A, she's a, not going to Hollywood.
2: No, not yeah. at all. Mm-hmm. So,
1: mm-hmm. which
2: It's it, it's either indicative of she's not interested, or it's <laughs> indicative of uh, that Hollywood really isn't into this. And I'm probably thinking that it's the latter than the former. Well, unless it has some kind of superhero component.
0: I don't know if Hollywood's the place. <laughs>
2: Architecture does at need a, a
0: superhero, though.
2: Aren't we due for a superhero? We're not going to find it no we're due for a superhero are we going to find it in uh, richard meyer oh oh stop what <laughs> i guess we should uh is that <laughs> I, I
0: guess i guess we can segue into uh our next news story which is uh the architectural league is the latest in in uh, responding to the allegations against richard meyer by rescinding his life trustee status Richard Meyer's been ever since news came out in the New York Times a few weeks ago about the uh, sexual harassment allegations or abuse. Was it abuse or harassment? Assault. Assault. Um, both. Yes. Yeah,
2: definitely both.
0: There was a follow-up article, I believe, last week from a number of women explaining reasoning for, for not coming out sooner. Apparently, this was not new news within the firm. There was a lot of fear about you know getting blacklisted or damaging their careers, but this is a this is, uh, news to most of the industry, but not so much in the office of Richard Meyer and Associates.
2: You know, it doesn't sound, here's the thing. It would be, it would be one thing if it wasn't no, if it wasn't a a secret just inside that firm, but apparently it wasn't a secret even outside that firm. Mm. And if that is the case, if that is true, then the back scratching in this industry is fucking awful and for those who are out there who who knew about this and didn't work for meyer and still didn't speak up about it when you had nothing to lose or gain by this it's just appalling it's appalling
0: yeah yeah i mean why when when you really are, you know, when there's when there's a, in a low risk situation in terms of your potential career damaging effects, you know, what is the reason for not coming coming out? It, you know, I you know, I think this this movement recently that has, you know, that started in the entertainment industry, in politics and now has recently entered the architecture industry with a list that uh, was released a couple of weeks ago and has received surprisingly little attention from the media. Architect included outside of the discussion forum and and uh, references uh, within other news pieces. You know, there's there was a list that was uh, it's called the Shitty Architecture Shitty Men in Architecture list that that began as a uh, a list identifying men and and the, a couple women I think are in there of abusive behavior in the workplace. Um, perhaps one of one of you knows a little more about it that could described a little bit more eloquently.
2: I've been tracking the list since I first knew about it. And some of the names on the list are pretty stunning. And I, I can't imagine the pressures that exist within a uh, particular news organizations to report on this given the anonymous nature of it. So it exactly. must be, it must be, it must be challenging uh, legally from a legal standpoint. And the one person that I want to make sure that I uh, um, applaud for actually taking time to, put together a very compassionate and compelling narrative and one without a lot of anger and animosity and retribution involved is s surface
1: yes kudos to s surface
2: yeah s's piece about about this particular it's it's dealt with in a very and s's um S will tell S's story, and I'm not going to tell S's story. But suffice it to say that there's a lot of people who who could probably have a lot more anger. And I I was was kind of bowled yeah. over by the way the case was presented and the and the path forward, which is even more interesting.
1: It was amazing. Yeah. It was amazing, and it Such wasn't. An, a-
2: yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't presented in a in a way. It was more like, you know, when I talked to Linda about it, it was more presented in a way of like a truth and reconciliation commission where yeah. there wasn't, yeah. A, yeah. it wasn't a punitive thing. There wasn't a carceral um, endpoint. There was a way of like, here's a way forward for people to make amends and give people what they need. And yes, you are going to suffer penalties, but it's not going to be in the justice system. It's going to be in a way that um, is going to certainly negatively impact you. (laughs) And it's going to have, um, it's going to, it's going to impact a lot of people, but it's, it's a path forward that makes everything potentially whole. But yeah, the list has been, the list, as I understand it, as I, as I've been looking at, it, has been taken down because there were numerous threats put up on the uh, on the page, obviously trying to intimidate um, people from putting any more information on there. I heard that there was a at least one legal threat. Yes, and it was constantly put up in several sections of the of the document, and so I think the administrators plural. Um, decided that it was in the best interest of everyone to figure out how to clearly present the information because, you know, I think it's good to have this discussion and because I think everyone thinks that the list because of everything that's gone on, you know, is that everyone on the list is a Harvey Weinstein and it's not, that's not the case. It's just, a, it's it's a shitty architect, men in architecture, but it's, like I said, it's because, it's changing and it's about the shitty behaviors in architecture. And so what that means, you know, I think we're in a landscape where people think that the shitty behavior is only about sexual harassment and assault and rape and violent behavior, but it's also about what is the expectation of of somebody working for somebody? Should I have to deal with the constant belittling? Should I have to deal with the microaggressions or the you know the things that men get that women don't get? And it's you know so it's it's really it's it's much broader than I think what people expect it to be. And therein lies some of the problems.
1: Well, honestly, to me, and I mean, speaking as a woman, of course, there are indignities that women have suffered and continue to suffer. But when I think about this in terms of architecture, my greatest hope for this shitty architecture men list is that it bring us as a profession and as a community of architects to discussing why our profession has to be abusive to our own members. You know, my hope is that we can stop with the studio culture of forcing all-nighters stop with the self-abuse of, you know, students taking Ritalin or whatever to keep themselves up all night so that they can do the work because their professor will judge them harshly if they don't stay up all night, whether or not the work is good. They'll, you know, they just, if they don't stay up all night, they're seen as not putting in sufficient effort. That's bullshit. You know, my, my hope is that we can go away from critiques that are students being lambasted by a group of Black-clad professionals that are basically only there to impress one another with their commentary on the student's work. The student is just a tool for them to talk to each other. That's bullshit. Like, my hope is that those... Indignities of our profession can go away. And I just want to go back again to S. Surface's article, which is on Arc Paper, and it is called How the Shitty Architecture Men List Can Address Abuse in Architecture. And if anyone wants to find it, I tweeted it several times. Follow my Twitter. There's a quote from it that says this. This is at the end Architects are more than capable of cutting out their own shitty behavior. You teach in elite institutions. You figured out how to construct unprecedented skyscrapers. You master planned major cities. You can figure this out. And when I think about it in those terms of we as a community of problem solvers, how can we solve this? We totally can make good come out of this this moment in our discipline. You know, I feel optimistic about it.
2: Can I, I just want to add one thing to that, too. Um, Please. I, I think I'm going to take a little bit of a contrarian view on this. The studio culture I ran, I ran into was, you know, I'm on the bottom end. I didn't get the, I wasn't an honors student, so I didn't get the pick of my studio professors. So... I really had to work harder and, and I always saw the criticism within a particular lens and maybe I was lucky, maybe at the fact that I was a man, but you know, I was, I was pretty I became pretty, and I was a, a, an adult student, so I wasn't a young student. I didn't go to I didn't go to college after when I was eighteen, fresh out of high school. So yeah. I don't have that experience. So I came to it pretty hardened already. So saying something to me that wasn't going to be aligning with my personality wasn't going to fly with me anyway. And I've had my share of bad crits, and I've had my share of horrible crits. And then I think the question I always run, I'm always asking myself, and even when I was doing it then, was well, here's a bad criticism. Let me take a look at the effort. Was the effort there? Did I deserve the grade I got? I never challenged a grade ever. And I've run into students who got, you know, 1,500 on SATs back when the SATs mattered and who were really, really <laughs> super smart and were honor students. And they did really shitty in studio. They were shitty designers. And they were the ones challenging the grades because they had this idea that they were the be all end all. And I, you know, I took a more reflective view and I was like, well, did the effort align with what I got and as a grade, or did the effort align with the criticism? And, and a lot of times, you know, I I realized I was angry. I was a, I was pretty pissed off at a lot of grades I got. I was pissed off at some of the criticism that I got. And then I had to evaluate, do I respect this person that's given me the criticism?
0: Right. If I
2: didn't respect them, it, it was easier to brush off. If I respected them, I understood where the criticism was coming from. And I could look at it at a distance. And if the criticism from the person I respected was particularly harsh, I would really look at the work and I would start to make the judgment and I could figure it out. I was, you know, again, uh, like I was tw- in my twenties when I was doing this. So I could take a look at the work and go, you know, the effort wasn't there. I mean, so that's where I'm, I'm it's hard to talk about that particular the studio culture. Now I've worked for, I work for a firm in Omaha and I had never worked for a design firm before. So one of the first jobs I had in Omaha was working for the design firm. He'd been published in record. He'd been won a shit ton of AIA awards and was published in review. And I never really put together a set of construction documents before. So I was doing this drawing and we were hand drawing at the time and he took my drawing, pinned it up on the wall and we proceeded to Crit, and he just tore me a new fucking asshole. And it was horrible. It was the most embarrassing experience I've ever had as a young designer. And in those experiences, every experience I've ever had at a firm has been a, either good or bad but it's taught me something. And at the end of the day, it's taught me who don't I want to be and who I want to be.
1: <laughs> but in a way, you're the one who's taken it and turned it into a lesson. Yes. You know, there's a there's a local architect, I won't name names, but there's a local architect who I know has given red lines to a intern. And the red lines consisted of using a red Sharpie to write WTF, what the fuck, across a detail. That's not helpful. No one's going to learn from a red line that says WTF. What they're going to learn from is if that, person yeah. generously says here is what you did wrong here is how you can improve it you know why did you think about doing it this way versus that way that's that's what helps people learn now yes every now and then we all need to come to jesus talk
2: certainly yeah. but
1: i don't think that that's overall the most useful way of teaching our that's young not, that's
2: not teaching that's not that's teaching. not teaching that's the arrogance of someone who should not be in the profession
1: exactly exactly Maybe
2: we, You know, I can't I can't imagine going into work and thinking that that was an acceptable mode of operation. If somebody did that to me today, they'd get my size 12 in their ass.
1: Yeah. Criticism can be. Uh, and I'm laughing now because the first uh, I looked it up the first time I wrote an op ed on Archonnect, which was 10 years ago, was called Generous Criticism. And that's been my my thing, you know. If you're gonna criticize someone, make it in a way that is helpful to that person. Call out shit when you see it, but don't just say that shit. Say, "Here is why my opinion is that your work is shit, and here is how I think you can improve it."
2: <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a book out there that I would recommend, and I haven't I haven't read it, but um, Linda practices it all the time. It's a book. Um, I forget the author. Um, it's called it's it's about radical candor. It's about Oh nice. Yeah. yeah
1: that's a good term. It's
2: just about just, you know, do it with love. Do it with complete like confidence that this person will if you talk to them honestly and you express this in a way that is not a uh, attack on their character or on their person, but it, it's just right. like in a way that they're gonna take it and feel empowered by it. That's what you do. Radical candor.
0: That term is totally Familiar to me. <laughs> oh, do you know what that's from? It's from an episode of the new season of Silicon Valley. There's it is. Yes, the guy oh, really talks about it. Yeah. Yes, he says it yes, yes, yes. So it's funny because I remember the very first experience I had with this kind of extreme criticism. I wasn't on the receiving end. I was purely a voyeur in the in the situation. It was when I went to go visit Cyark before I started studying there, and I was watching a thesis review, and Eric Moss literally took this exquisitely made model and just started tearing it apart. And then with uh, trying to show everybody how much better it is with like, you know, this, you know, parts of it ripped apart and put somewhere else. And I could literally see the tears welling up in this, in this uh, student's eyes. And it made me wonder, you know, and, and that, that specific moment, it was kind of shocking to me because I had never seen that, but I saw that type of experience. Countless times after that, you know, after while while studying at SciArc and and since then being on reviews, you know, I, I question the the uh, the value that that type of of criticism offers. And and I think that it is kind of this peacocking behavior that is quite prevalent in in uh, the architecture studio and in the review, the world of uh, architecture reviews. I think that it's it's usually, you know, for the more for the benefit of the person trying to appear dominant or maybe smarter. But then again, you know, there have been personally I've been in situations where I received harsh criticism and I blew it off as irrelevant. But later in life, as I learned more, I realized that the criticism was wrong. It's just I wasn't at the point in my life where I could listen to to the criticism being delivered in the way that it was. I mean, when I when I first started designing websites for work, I was young. I was designing websites much more so than I was running a business. I I didn't know what I was doing running a business. And I would get all this feedback from my clients that I thought was just ridiculous because I was, you know, I was looking at it from the perspective of a designer that just wanted to make something look really cool and and work really well for for a firm without Taking into consideration a lot of the, a lot of the uh, issues that come with running a successful business. So now at where I am in life now, I see that, that criticism and I, I wish that I was more open to hearing some of that, some of that feedback. So it's, I think for some people, some people love that kind of tough love approach to criticism. I think they respond well to it. Perhaps it, it relates to how they were raised, how their, how, how their parents maybe disciplined or taught them. Other people do not. So do we kind of, uh, I mean, do you think a more effective way of, of offering criticism is, is a kind of the lowest common denominator in, in a more productive, less aggressive way? Or do you think everybody just needs to accept that there's different different forms.
2: Well, you know, it's interesting. I think the the times I've been on jury reviews have always been at either midterm or final reviews. And it's really incumbent upon the the studio professor to kind of make the, make the case for each student. And that's, that's the one thing that I don't see happen a lot. The times I, that I have been on the jury that where there's been, and I remember this in school, like, you know, the, the professor would say, you know what, this is where this person is. This is what they're doing. This is what, you know, or they would Queue them up. They would say, this person hasn't shown up. And this is, how yeah. I've seen it. This person hasn't shown up to class. You're going to see the work on the walls and you have at it because part of, you know, part of this profession is weeding out the people who are just chair, seat fillers and looking for someone who are people who are serious about the profession. You know, we've got, <laughs> we've got a, a too many architects, I think in some ways, who shouldn't be architects, who are just kind of seat fillers and are looking to go, you know, we need serious people. And there were some people that I went to school with who were terrible and they would show up at the, the final review and have stuff on the wall and they'd be like, where the fuck did that come from? And, or they would come in and they would be, you know, fumfering around and like, you know what, Quit, you know, these people have jobs too. So I think there's a mutual, mutually shared, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a discussion or a kind of Bond or something that needs to happen between all the parties in place—a kind of a unspoken understanding—that I'm taking time out of my fucking day. I'm coming here (laughs) to to offer you my ideas. If you show up with no work or half-assed or don't present a coherent idea, I'm going to cut you at your knees. So come, come ready to play because this is—you're going to be standing in front of a board, either a community board or board of directors—presenting your ideas. This shit's serious. You know, I'm not going to trust you with my 50 million dollar project if you come here in your Birkenstocks and your uh and your, you know, your dreadlocked hair thinking you're going to fucking get through this and with your half-assed drawings that you did last night half loaded on a fucking bong and you smell like bong water. I mean, yeah. I, I, know, I have You're no talking love, about
1: white guy dreadlocks, right? Have, yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs>
2: Every one of us has had one of those guys in the class. Not the dreadlocks that form naturally in the studio.
1: Not the real dreadlocks that are, yeah, no,
2: exactly. No, <laughs> we, we've all had one of those people in our class. And I think everybody listening to this podcast has had one of those people in their class. And we know who they are. They're a waste of our time. Hey, I went to the University of Oregon. I, everyone there is like that.
1: But, oh, never. <laughs> Plenty of
0: them. <laughs> uh, no, but yeah. I, those are really good points.
1: So I, you know, I don't know. I just I talking a little more about criticism. And I, I listened also to this Christopher Hawthorne interview today on DNA and Francis Anderson, who. Her accent's so amazing. She asked him the question, you know, how can you, now that you're employed by the city, will you be able to actually critique the mayor if the mayor has an idea? And, and, you know, Christopher Hotham very clearly said, yeah, no, there's, there are in certain situations, I acknowledge that I will not be able to say things as freely as I would have previously. And I mean, I feel like all that I'm asking in terms of criticism is that you acknowledge that. In a public forum in front of their peers, just totally destroying someone's sense of self-worth is not really valuable. If a student is doing so poorly that you really think they don't belong in architecture school, don't announce that in a group of 50 people watching a public presentation, make criticism that is helpful to the student and to anyone in the audience who might be watching, and then take that student privately and say, you know what, you might think about a different career.
0: <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I mean, yeah, excellent, excellent point. And I think that an even worse situation than than what you're describing is uh, in humiliating people in front of their peers is something that yeah. we see every day online with, you know, trolling, because I mean, yeah. not it's the same thing it's 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 ripping people apart in front of in front of their peers colleagues co-users of a of a website or a discussion forum but it's taking out the context and you don't know who it is that's that's giving this this negative feedback you don't know right who it is that's watching you know because i mean as right. as i've mentioned before for every discussion on Archonnect, there's a hundred people watching. For every one person that's yeah. that's participating, you know, I I've always admired the way that you guys have been apparently resilient to this type of trollish behavior. Donna and Ken, you both take a different response to this. Donna, you tend to be much more. I I guess I guess you would take a much more kind of how would I describe it? Human empathetic empathy exactly empathetic <laughs> empathetic understanding. I, I guess. A more productive. Um, Ken can. can. Ken, Ken, <laughs> Ken can be pretty harsh in his response, but you know, few people can argue that when Ken uh, lays down the the law, it's usually to somebody who deserves it you know, 100%, 100%. Agree. 100% agree. But but, you know, Ken's Ken's ready to fight. Donna, you're more ready to I think you come across like you truly just maybe feel sorry for who this person is that's leading them to to uh, unleash on somebody they don't know in a public forum. But uh, what how do you guys I mean, this is this is based <laughs> on my perception and perhaps other people's perceptions. I mean, how do you guys take online criticism and and that type of uh, trolling?
1: I don't know. I, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, does it ever bother you? Uh, I guess as I, I so of course it does. Anytime anyone says anything negative about me, it bothers me absolutely. I mean, I think we're all humans, but there's there as I'm older now, there's an ability to sort of say, okay, a criticism I get from my best friend, I'm going to weigh in my heart differently than when I get from some online jerk who I will never know who they are. You know, I, I can, I, I can weigh those things differently in my reality. So, of course, it hurts, though, to hear hurtful things online. I throw out nasty comments to people every now and then. Usually when I get frustrated with them and I just give up, like, I forget it. I'm not I can't talk to you anymore. And then I say something nasty and then I move on and then I don't listen to that person's opinions anymore.
2: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Or you can literally click the ignore button and not even see it. Yeah.
2: You know, early, early on in my my involvement in the website was much more passionate and much more raw in terms of how criticism came at me. And it was much less considered. And my responses and you know there's there's one particular individual who really stopped me dead in my tracks in something i had been working on because he said every premise that i had about the thing that i was writing about was wrong and which is you know even today i still you know it still bothers me because i just think about what is right and what is what because i kept questioning I'm like what does that mean what is right and what is wrong it's it's, it's your interpretation It's my interpretation. It's this other architect's particular interpretation. And it really kind of it's it really like threw a big roadblock because I was on a really good path. I had this piece I had been working on. It's like 20 pages now. And it was and it was like I could I could see it. I wasn't even anywhere near through with it. And I was like, wow, this is something really here. And when I posted it, it was like and then they really cut me apart. I was like, wow, that's pretty that was really cutting. But you know, there's a there's a great post that was put up, I think, early today actually. And it's really indicative of what we're talking about right now. This person is commenting about how they are a great designer, but that they they're getting criticized from their boss because they don't know how to put buildings together, but they're sure that they're a great designer. And this is probably the the best post that is the best indication of what we're talking about right now because Donna is on there kind of like saying yeah, everybody's saying what is right <laughs> and you're just not you're basically not really listening and people like Miles who is hit Right on where I was going to go. You can't be a great designer if you don't understand how a building goes together. Those two things are kind of, you know, they kind of are woven. And that's the kind of mistake that you make as a as an early career professional. The early career professional is you think that your shit doesn't stink. And I'm dealing with that, <laughs> you know, I'm dealing with that right now with a particular project and the design team. You know, if I were to post the drawings that I've had to labor through, you would see a design team that's never worked for an architect before because I could I could seriously because I'm and I'm frustrated by it because I'm the architect of record for this particular project. Oh man, yeah. And I'm trying to get this project through permitting. And I'm trying to get I'm trying to manage the construction and I'm trying to do right by my client. And I have only my client's sisters at heart. I don't really have, I don't really care. What the designers think, and they're continually designing. And I'm like, pencils down, motherfuckers. (laughs) We are done. We are done here. This is getting built now. And if I showed you the drawings, they're still red lineable. I mean, there's there's text over graphics, so when you print it, you can't read the text. Dimension. It's just it's a disaster. But I'm like I'm trying to. I'm like, and when I ask for changes. You know, I'm not getting them in a timely fashion. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do the best I can. I'm the intermediary between all the parties. So there's a way, and I'm not perfect, but I'm trying to live the way Donna lives. (laughs) No, stop. But I have to be, I have to, well, it's, 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 you know, I'm dealing with egos here. I'm dealing with, I'm dealing with some designers who have worked for high profile firms, but have never really put together a set of construction documents. They've won awards. They're talented. They're super talented. They have great ideas and they're, they're the bomb. They're going to be They're They're the next, you know, next thing. But they've never put a project together before that had to get reviewed by anybody at a a building planning board. So through professionals that have to actually look at the drawings and make like, why is that? I I can't read that text. It's it's the graphics are hiding the text. And, you know, these are very simple things that you as a as a I mean, what's so frustrating for me as a, a seasoned professional is that it goes to what has been said before. You know, even if you think about it, what, what uh, a little bit of what S wrote, you, you win awards, you do great designs, your document sets look like shit. Nobody can read it. How do you expect the contractor to build off this mess? And, you know, there's that. So I'm like saying that in my head. I'm like, I'm just not addressing it because I just don't, I'm not getting paid to teach them. They want to, <laughs> if they want to hire me to be their architect so they can get their credits so they can take their exams, that's fine. They can do that. Oh, they should. Um, they should. And and I'll, I'll critique their drawings all day long. I'll do it in my sleep, if, you know, because it's that easy. Well, you know, I think that you would
0: <laughs> I think you would really be doing them a service by communicating that to them, because as someone that does not practice architecture like both of you do, I'm curious, like how often do you come across younger architects or maybe not even younger architects that clearly do not know what they're doing in, in certain areas? But Think they do? I mean, is that a is that a chronic issue in in architecture in your experience? Yes. And yes. how do you typically? <laughs> we all have to think And do you do you <laughs> uh, do you communicate that to these people ever, or do you just kind of let it slide, roll your eyes, and and do what you need to do?
1: It depends on the situation. Like, Ken, you're yeah. in this situation right now, right, where you're you're not contacted with these this firm. You are contacted with someone who is also contracted with them separately, right? Correct. So there, I mean, there's just, you know, around liability issues and protocols, there's all kinds of various ways. If I'm working with someone in my own firm who I know doesn't understand how something is done, you, you know, you sit down and take time with them because it's to the good of the whole firm for them to learn what they're doing. You're in a weird situation, Ken, where you're, you're yeah, you're like, their fuck-ups can come back to haunt you, potentially.
2: Yeah, But, you know, to, <laughs> Paul, it's interesting because... Each of us as, as design professionals, we have to do that for ourselves, about ourselves. I mean, I have never, you know, I am, I am not unlike the many professionals in, who are licensed now who figured out a gray area when they were doing their IDP, who never got experience in AIA contracts. Yeah, you know, I never did. I never had. I, I don't, you know, so we have to, we're faking it until we make it. And we're working through the projects that we have either privately or with firms, like making our mistakes and making them small, but making them fast and learning quick. So it's not just for me to another, you know, future professional. It's even me with myself when I'm like, I've never, you know, doing the butcher's project was on my own was a fucking nightmare at first because (laughs) I had never done a project on my own before uh, from, for myself. And it was frightening and i learned a lot from that experience and I, every time i do another project i learn a little bit more yeah and every time i'm challenged by the code because i'm working on a particular project i learn a little bit more it's a it's a one foot in front of the other the fake it till you make it thing is tr- you know for a large measure for of us who are working you know multiple jobs who are trying to you know find a path forward it's it's that you know it's for very self critical so it's hard to even give myself compassion right so yeah. it's even harder for me to kind of extend that compassion. So I have to work harder when it comes to somebody else's work, because I'm like, you know, I'm the one signing these drawings. I'm the one who's all the liabilities, you know, and I, granted, I have a client who I trust implicitly, who is giving me a lot of room and knows that I have her best interest in mind. So it's hard for me to kind of really level a lot. And And it was interesting because the, my client had been talking to to her designers and, and uh, they said, you know, Ken's really hard on us. He's really, really, he's really, he's really hard on us. And, you know, we'd never been talked to that way. And he <laughs> wants us to turn things around. And, you know, he gives us a demand and he needs these drawings at a certain time. And he says this, but she goes, but, they said to me at the same, at the same time, they go, but he, damn, Ken's really smart. Yeah. And i went like, no, I'm not really smart. I just, I've done this a few times and I know what's necessary.
1: You know what you're talking about. That's the thing. But see, you're you're going to end up on the shitty architecture men list, oh. Ken, because you're,
2: <laughs> yes,
0: you're too
1: mean. You're saying things that well,
0: are Well, speaking of clients, uh, I mean, like, what do you guys do when you get Client criticism, you know, when sometimes, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes, you know, the criticism that I had received early in my career, I look back at now and I see that it's much more valid than I considered it back then. But what about when you just know a client is wrong and, you know, and that and that you're an architect, you you know what you know what needs to be done and the client doesn't see it that way. I mean, how do you how do you uh, address that type of criticism
1: so this is actually timely for me um (laughs) and it's uh one of my rules is that ultimately it's the client living or using the space living in the space in whatever way and i ultimately in the long term you know taking the long view i don't want them to be unhappy in their space so even when they make a decision that i just cannot fight for whatever reason that i think is bad I won't tell them.
0: Will you? I won't tell them. Will you try to?
1: Oh, I will fight to change their mind as hard as I can. And this is very timely because I have a client who recently made a decision that I completely disagreed with. I had so many conversations and emails and little drawings that I did on my own time, you know, not being paid to do them just because I wanted to convince this person and I ultimately lost and the thing is built now. And to me, it looks, you know, it it had to do with alignment of wood. And to me, the way it is looks too perfect and kind of dead. And I thought there was a beauty in the misaligned wood grain basically of the previous iteration, but this client just disagreed with me. And I will never tell this person that to me, it looks very dead and plain because I don't want them to not Mm -hmm. like it. Right. I want them to like, I want them to love their space. So even though I lost the battle, (laughs) I, 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 yeah, I want them to be happy. Ultimately that's, that's most important to me. So, I mean, it's kind of a small detail. It's one that most people wouldn't notice, but I, do notice it.
0: Would you take that same approach if it was like just the most amazing project that you just had such a strong conviction for? I mean, would, would the, would that, that rule that you gave yourself in that, that it's ultimately your client's project and you want them to be happy? Could you see yourself ever just fighting to the point where like you would refuse to do something that the client wanted, knowing that it would just really change the entire? vision of your of your design?
1: I don't think I would. I think I'd rather just disown the design at that point. I would tell the people I know in the field and that I respect. Yeah, guess what? My client did this thing that uh, ah, I couldn't you know, I couldn't beat them. So guess what? That's one that I just mark off for the book as oh, well, lost that battle. But the place where I would draw that line is with uh, a code or life safety issue. Yes. Because, yeah, at some point you just have to say, no, I cannot let you build it this way. But when it comes down to how something looks, no, I would write it off as, okay. well, I lost that one. I'll move on and I'll win the next one. That's, that's really all you can do.
2: <laughs> you disagree, Ken? No, no, I have, I have two stories to, to that. The first restaurant I did, I held on to their deposit for three months. I just couldn't figure out how this idea was going to work. I just didn't understand it. They were talking to me about what they wanted to do. And I just like, I don't believe in this project. I just don't believe it'll work. And I finally got to the point after three months, I'm like, what the fuck do I know? I'm just a dumb architect. I mean, I don't know anything about a restaurant business. I've never run one. I've, I've worked in a few. And what do I know? I mean, they could—they could be the best thing in the world. Turns out, they were—they had great food, they had a great idea, but they closed eight months later, and they closed for the reasons I—I I was thinking in my head they were—they were, they were, they were <laughs> going to fail. This wasn't going to work, and they—I'm cl- not lying to you—they closed for those reasons. They, that yeah. was the reason why they closed. So I decided I'm like I'm not going to hold back anymore. I'm going to tell the clients that I have that I get from now on is that where I see the pitfalls, and you know I, I. You know, the, the, here's the interesting thing about what I've done is that I've ex- decided that, you know what, the kind of business I want to be is the one that has a lot of knowledge, a little bit of knowledge in a lot of different areas. So now when I meet with clients who, and typically the clients I get, they don't have a lot of money, yeah. they're uh, tilting towards, they're tilting at their dreams and- I want to make their dreams happen and I'm going to do the best I can, but I'm also going to point them towards resources that it makes it more viable for them to kind of realize their dreams. So if I understand whether funding resources or abilities to get money on a a reduced rate or neighborhood community grants that could help them improve their facade. Yeah, I'm I'm totally down for that. I'm I'm like, so now I'm kind of getting into an area that I didn't expect to get into, which is kind of, which is really cool. And so I, I share that knowledge. I fired a client. Yeah. I fired a client. I fired a client I really worked hard to get and I wasn't getting paid a lot of money to do it, but I fired them for particularly the reason that Paul cited that they wanted to do something and they wanted a vision that I just did not believe in. And I got tired of like dealing with the bullshit. It was a year I've been working with this particular client and finally their, her fucking brand designer came with design. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not, this is not what I do. I don't build somebody else's design and I'm, we're, you know what? This relationship is not working, and it's not working for me, and it's just not what I do. And I fired them. Here's the thing, Paul. Here's the here's the here's the thing about that. People have been pretty critical of me because of the how I. Offer my services and what the fee I expect. And I learned a couple of lessons in these things that I won't do that anymore for a lot of people, but I will do it for the people who are coming from or in communities that are have been particularly marginalized by the design community and haven't been given design services and who normally couldn't afford a service like mine. So I extend myself in ways in the pro bono sphere in that area. But when, when it comes to clients who are out making a profit, you fucking bet your ass. I'm going to be charging them that kind <laughs> of money. I'm not doing that anymore. But I, so I extended myself on this particular project. Now, if it had been the other way, if I didn't offer a pro bono service to this particular client, cause I wanted to do it. And I was kind of in it for like 20, you know, you know, a high dollar fee, it would have been harder for me to make that make that yeah. choice because there's yeah. a lot more money on the table at that point god I, I i'll just whatever they want to do so that was the easy decision for me because the money wasn't there wasn't a lot of money and it was just sucking my time and i'm like it made it easier for me to step away to say "Fuck that the uh the
0: only time i ever fired a client i went down in a glorious blaze of fire we were designing a uh, a website for this company here in la that design that that creates trailers for like big blockbuster movie. It's, it's this, it's the, uh, you know, the, the trailers you see before watching a movie in the theater. And, uh, we had been working so hard on this website. And finally we went to go present the final site and the owner of the company brought in his laptop with a animation that his seven year old son made and said, this is what I want the homepage to be. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was the logo like rolling around on the ground. And, and then he, he had this completely different vision for, for everything. And so I told him to, uh, hire his son and, and I left.
2: (laughs) Perfect. (laughs)
1: Oh man. I, yeah. Radical candor. It's it's a, it's a hard (laughs) thing in the design world because you, you really are in a lot of ways, putting yourself out there in what you believe personally. And then you also have to balance that with the fact that it's a business and you're, you know, it, it, this is this is the, the place where architecture is so hard, is that, of course, yeah. we're passionate about it. Of course, we care deeply about it. Any kind of design work, you care deeply about. But then you also have to figure out how to, how to make money. And yeah, I fired clients too, never spectacularly, yeah. but sometimes you just have to, you have to walk away.
0: Well, so. it's a criticism- Fueled industry. And it's uh, a lot it of the work is, we do is. is out of passion <laughs> and it's a lot of it is subjective, uh-huh. you know, like it, yep. things are, are perceived very differently by other people. So I think if you're going to work within the world of architecture or design in general, criticism is something that's just part of the. Part of the game, but anyways, I, I really appreciate your comments on that. We we actually are going to be talking about criticism all week next week in our crosstalk series. So there's going to be pieces by a number of different writers looking at uh, criticism from a from a number of different angles, and uh, parts of our conversation just might make it into that series. So we'll stay stay tuned for that, starting Monday. Before we finish, I wanted to. Give us, Donna, you and I, an opportunity to plug some job ads that, that are, uh, that have recently been posted on Archonnect. It's been, it's, it's been actually an exciting time in the job board. We've, um, given the nature of, you know, this shitty men in architecture, uh, (laughs) we're actually just finishing today a three week series on really great job ads that are, that are found in Archonnect jobs board that are from firms that are either wholly owned by women or, um, or co -co co-owned co-partnered by by women amazing work and a lot of really strong women that um in our industry that that you don't hear about by name too much you know you a lot of these women you you are uh many people may be familiar with the names of the firms but not the actual women themselves and they they all have interesting stories that that we're sharing in these uh in these pieces but going on to these specific jobs Donna, you posted a job recently for uh, an executive director at the People for Urban Progress in Indianapolis.
1: Yeah. So the nonprofit board that I'm on is uh, looking for a new executive director. Our current executive director, who ha- who is the founder of the, the nonprofit, is uh, Michael Bricker, who's been on the podcast, is stepping into more of a design role. And we need a, a new uh, executive director to take on more of the um, the tasks that an executive director takes on, um, such as fundraising and outreach and, and uh, operations, things like that. So We are actually, as a nonprofit, we're working with a nonprofit headhunting site. Basically, they're not just headhunters, they're consultants, but they are helping us to figure out how to find a good applicant. And they asked, so what are the best design job boards, design-related job boards that you guys know of? And I was like, well, Archonnect is the number one job board in the architecture world, so we should post it there. So we posted an ad for the new executive director for People for Urban Progress on the Archonnect job board. And it's uh, it's. Getting traffic. And right. It's great.
0: Well, I mean, it's, it's really an amazing opportunity at a, at a company that seems like it would be an amazing place to work. I mean, the, uh, the, this, yeah. the, uh, the whole mission behind, uh, people for urban progress and the, and the products that come out of it. Very, very cool stuff. So yep. if Fantastic. you're in the Indianapolis yep. area or if you feel an urge to or move, looking to there, move yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful place. <laughs> um, check that out for sure. We'll, we'll have a link to that job on, our uh, show notes and a plug for Arch Connect we posted a uh, a job for a social media curator the other day we um it's actually we kind of hinted at an upcoming very exciting development that's happening we're we're going to be opening up a physical space in in the arts district of downtown Los Angeles a really exciting area with tons of architects right around the corner a 2 minute walk from SciArc. and we got a lot of exciting stuff that's going to be happening there so we're looking for actually a social media curator to start taking over our social media channel somebody that really knows a lot about how social media works and somebody that knows a lot about architecture and a lot about our community so we're still looking for people we've had a ton of great responses i'm going to be start Starting to interview people tomorrow. One thing that actually came up that I think you guys would be interested in that I have found incredibly helpful when reviewing job applicants is that a lot of a lot of young architects now are doing their own little podcasts. You know, I I don't think anybody's oh, actually really? listening to them, but I've been listening to some of these <laughs> and it is it's like the most amazing job interview because you're getting like a, a very very transparent view into their lives and their thought processes they they talk about previous jobs they've had they talk about themselves as as a as an employee and and as you know a struggling uh, entrepreneur in some cases but um i have to say if you're looking for a job creating a podcast even if it's only going to be listened by by your mom is is a great way to get in the door at at a uh, prospective um employers
2: because it's it's a, it's
0: a really good way to sell yourself.
1: That's really cool. <laughs>
2: I have one question for you. Uh, for the social media uh, curator, does it help if you're double-jointed? <laughs> I, was like, I think this is, uh, yeah, you're, you're
0: talking about what I shared with you earlier. One of the applicants, I have to say, which was one of the most enjoyable applications that I read, among her special skills listed in her resume was uh, being double-jointed and having an extraordinarily long tongue. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I have to say, it's I mean,
1: an I, tongue, new right? hire. I have <laughs> to say,
0: yeah, no, I have to say her resume was tailored towards her, uh, her, I think her, her dream job, which is comedy improv. So she is, oh, she is, yeah. Uh, but you know, social media curator could be a great, a great job to have, you know, until you hit the big time in, in the world of improv.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: So they're the best writers. They are. Yes. And, uh, they probably would be very good at social media too.
2: And don't forget, I think it uh, didn't Andy Warhol work for like, you know, some of the great talents in the world work for some of the weirdest places, you know, doing like, you know, crazy things. He did.
1: Yeah. So. He did store like window display and that kind of that kind Windows of stuff. Window
2: displays, right? Yeah. Actually, you know. And
0: advertising, advertising, I think. Yeah. One of my favorite podcasts these days is How I Started It. I don't know if you've ever listened to that. It's by an NPR guy. And he talks to founders of very successful companies. And the last episode, he was talking to the founder of uh, FUBU. And and you know FUBU. It's uh, it's a it's a clothing line. Uh, FUBU stands for for us by us. Originally. Designed for the African American uh, community. And it was really interesting. He was talking about how, you know, before he launched this, this, uh, company, he was working at Red Lobster. And the thing that he loved about that job was that all of the staff had access to the, like the corporate conference calls and everybody was allowed to have access to all of the, like the, the business paperwork. So he learned all about business just by, by tracking, you know, how Red Lobster was performing financially so you could you could go from being a waiter at red lobster to uh the owner of a quarter billion dollar business if you uh if you play your cards right well it's been a long episode i think we're all done it has
1: been thanks you guys this has been a lot of talking donna it's (laughs) It's always you to go
0: uh celebrate your birthday
1: yeah i don't know what i'm gonna do but i will start with some more wine
0: (laughs) that's always a good place to start (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, thanks to everybody out there for joining us this week. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ArcSessions, or with hashtag sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at arcconnect.com And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thanks again, and uh, we'll talk to you guys next time.
1: Great. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.